God Almighty, we praise You for all Your perfections. We praise You for Your plan and purposes for the creation which You bring to fulfillment through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for choosing us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. We thank You for sending Christ into the world in the fullness of time. Born of a woman, born under law, to redeem us from the curse of the law and usher in a new creation. And today, on this Christ the King Sunday, Fulfillment Sunday, we especially look ahead to Christ's promised final coming when He will give to us all glorified resurrection bodies, when He will complete our salvation, when He will wipe away every tear and give us eternal joy in Your presence, and when He will bring us into the final new creation. O oh, Father, we look ahead to that day, the consummation of Christ's kingdom, when Christ Himself will be all in all, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus indeed is Lord, when all things will be reconciled in Him and summed up in Him and subjected to Him and death will have lost its sting forever. Come, Lord Jesus. Come today to meet us here and give us Your gifts. And come at the last day to turn hope into reality and faith into sight. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He is our priest, our King, our prophet. We thank You that in Him we have every spiritual blessing. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness. Oh, Father, we pray that You would reveal to us today who Christ is, who He is for us, all that He has done for us, that we might trust in Him more fully, that we might turn away from our sins and our idolatries to serve Him more faithfully, more completely. Oh, Father, we pray today that You would speak to us the Word of the Gospel, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Your Son and our Savior, the King, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may know the name of the famous author and literary critic Truman Capote. Uh, he actually has some ties to this state, Alabama. Uh, once he said of a work of literature that he did not like, he said, that's not writing, that's just typing. In other words, he said to this author, what you've produced here doesn't really have literary qualities. It's not a fine piece of literature. It's not really literary art. You're just banging at the keys on the typewriter. There's no art to it. Now, some have treated Mark's Gospel in the same way. It is the shortest Gospel. Uh, scholars will tell you that the Greek is not as polished or refined as other books in the New Testament. It begins rather abruptly. It ends very abruptly. Uh, it doesn't have some of the uh, obvious stylistic techniques or uh, literary artistry that the other Gospel writers use. And so it might seem that Mark was just doing the ancient equivalent of just typing rather than really writing. Uh, I want to argue nothing could be further from the truth. Mark's Gospel, read rightly, 
uh, is truly a literary masterpiece for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Mark's Gospel is a beautiful work, yes, of history, but also of theological literature. This is a carefully crafted Gospel. Mark is actually a very sophisticated storyteller. Each passage in Mark, each piece of Mark, each episode of Mark's Gospel connects with a complex array of other biblical texts. Uh, Each passage in Mark's Gospel has its own literary architecture, its own literary structure that helps us decode the central meaning of the passage. I think that literary artistry is on display throughout Mark's Gospel, but I think one of the places where we can really see Mark's literary craftsmanship coming through is in his account of the transfiguration, the story of Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. Uh, The story is written as a chiasm, which means that the story has matching sections. The beginning and end of this story match one another. There are two intersections that match each other. And then right in the middle, you get the basic gist, the real meaning of the story. So how does it work? The account of the transfiguration in Mark opens with Jesus and the disciples ascending the mountain where Jesus will be transfigured. It ends with them descending the mountain, discussing the resurrection. So you have the ascent and the descent. You've got the transfiguration happening and then you've got a discussion of the resurrection, which shows you that in some way the transfiguration and resurrection correspond to one another. The transfiguration is, among other things, a preview of His resurrection glory. In the first part of the story, the disciples see Jesus with Moses and Elijah. That pair happens uh, to show up a lot together in Scripture. In the first part of the story, the disciples see Jesus with Moses and Elijah. But in the last part of the story, the disciples see Jesus alone. As if to say, while Moses and Elijah had their run and they were glorious for a time, their glory is fading. They are passing the baton to Jesus, and Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. He stands in an utterly unique place. And then you see what that is right there in the very middle of the story, right smack dab in the middle of this account, there is that divine voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. See, this voice is to inform the disciples that Jesus shines with the glory of God because He is the Son of God. The Word of Jesus is God's own Word. Indeed, He is God's ultimate revelation to us. And that's really the point of the story. That's the meaning of the transfiguration. Jesus is worth listening to because He is God's eternal Son in human form. And the Word that Jesus speaks is the Gospel. What word has Jesus been speaking? The promise of His death and resurrection. So there you have the structure of the story. But Mark has also told this story in a way that inescapably calls to mind several Old Testament texts. Several Old Testament stories are invoked. Uh, This passage with Jesus on the mountain very clearly parallels the story of Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24 and 34. Consider some of those parallels. Moses and Jesus both take three men with them up the mountain. Moses waited six days to meet with God. Verse 2 tells us this transfiguration happened on the sixth day. 
Moses' skin shined in the presence of God's glory cloud. Jesus shines in the glory cloud as well. Moses came down from the mountain and met with unbelief on the part of God's people. They were, they'd given up on Moses and gathered around the golden calf. They were worshiping an idol. Moses comes down the mountain and meets with unbelief. Jesus comes down the mountain, and as we'll see when we get into the next section in Mark, he meets with unbelief as well. Unbelief on the part of his disciples who can't cast out an unclean spirit. Unbelief even on the part of the father of this boy who has the unclean spirit, who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus and Moses both meet with unbelief. Further, Mark tells us that Jesus' clothes here become shining white like snow, such as no longer on earth could whiten them. That's an echo, it seems, of Malachi 3.2 that says, when the Lord comes to His people, He will be like a refiner's fire and like launder's soap. Further, the white garment, the shining white garment that Jesus has in this transfiguration account reminds us of the priestly robes. The Old Testament priests would wear white robes as they ministered in the sanctuary. Jesus here is seen wearing a priestly garment, indicating that He will be the great high priest of God's people who offers the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. Further, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days... In the Ancient of Days, this divine figure is described having a garment white as snow and hair that shines like pure wool, and His throne is as a flame of fire. See, Jesus here has a garment that shines white as snow. And so we could say His garment is not only priestly, like that of the Old Covenant priests, but His white robe is also royal. It is a kingly robe, like that worn by the Ancient of Days. Indeed, we can even go one step further and connect this with the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we find that the martyrs wear white. Jesus has come to be the ultimate martyr. So you have all these connections with the way His dress is described. In Scripture, clothes are not just functional, they're symbolic. And so they reveal one's station, one's position, one's role and office. Jesus here is described as having this shining white garment. It reveals Him to be a priest who will offer Himself as a sacrifice and a king who will lay down His life for His people as a martyr. In the transfiguration, Jesus is not just showing off. He's showing what He's come to do. What He's come to do as priest and king and indeed God in the flesh. Further, Mark tells us that as they were on the mountain and Jesus began to shine with this glory, a cloud overshadowed them. Now what cloud is this? It can be none other than the glory cloud of God that overshadows them. This cloud appears again and again in the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the same cloud that is described throughout the Old Testament as a kind of mobile throne chariot for God. Uh, Isaiah 19 tells us that the Lord rides about the heavens on His swift cloud. This is the cloud that filled the tabernacle and the temple. It's the cloud that guided Israel through the wilderness. It's the cloud that covered Mount Sinai full of lightning and thunder when the law was given. It's a cloud that's said to be filled with angels in the book of Deuteronomy. In Psalm 18, the voice of God speaks out of the cloud. And the voice of God speaking out of the cloud is so mighty, it breaks the cedars and causes the mountains to tremble. The cloud is identified with God's Spirit. 
Again, the Lord rides about the heavens on His glory cloud, bringing blessing and judgment according to His will, according to His purposes. It's a kind of portable heaven. The cloud, we're told elsewhere in Scripture, is filled with many witnesses. It's filled with the saints who have gone to be with the Lord in glory. We enter into that cloud in worship to worship God with His saints. It's out of this cloud that we are baptized as the water comes down from above, out of the cloud, falling upon our heads in baptism. This is the cloud that Jesus will later ride into heaven in His ascension. And He will return at His last day on this glory cloud. Indeed, at His trial, and His trial seen later in Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells the Jewish high priest that He will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. That's the cloud that overshadows them here. It's a cloud packed full of meaning in light of its Old Testament connections. The the cloud makes the transfiguration, really you could say, a heavenly event. Heaven touches down on that mountain to reveal who Jesus is and what He's come to do. This is the Father and the Spirit drawing near to the Son to declare who He is and to show the disciples what He's come to accomplish. Now, between the last sermon I preached on, Mark, what I've just done for you this morning, we've looked at the build-up to the transfiguration. We've looked at the meaning of the transfiguration itself. What we want to do now is look more closely at the aftermath of the transfiguration. What follows from the transfiguration? What happened on their way down the mountain. Mark records this for us. It must be important. What happens after this heavenly experience, this mountaintop experience? Well, as we see so often in Mark's Gospel, verse 9, on the way down the mountain, Jesus commands them to not tell anyone. He wants them to keep what they've just witnessed a secret. They're to keep it confidential. No doubt Peter, James, and John were chomping at the bit to announce to others what they'd seen. But Jesus hushes them up. He says they should tell no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And this happens again and again in Mark's Gospel. Jesus continually reveals something to His disciples and then He tells them to conceal it. Revelation and concealment go together up to the point of His resurrection. And then all that has been concealed is to be revealed openly to everyone. But of course, what Jesus says here provokes questions on the part of the disciples. They wonder what Jesus means when He talks about His rising from the dead. And so they raise this question. They start to discuss this as they make their way down the mountain. Here uh, we see the disciples combining two of my favorite things, hiking and theological discussion. All right? Can't, it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, it would have been a lot of fun, I'm sure, to, to, to be walking down this mountain having this kind of discussion. Except the disciples are really scratching their heads over this. They really don't know what to do with it. See, the disciples, like a lot of the Jews of their day, had in their heads a, a kind of understanding of, of, of a timetable of future events. They thought they knew how things would unfold when the last days arrived. They thought they knew the sequence of events that would take place before... Messiah established His kingdom before the last days arrived. They ask a question. They ask Jesus, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Why is it first Elijah and then Messiah follows the kingdom 
followers. It's interesting the way they ask this question. Uh, they attribute this view of Elijah's coming to the scribes. Of course, we know from later in Mark's Gospel that the scribes will be among those who orchestrate the plot that will result in the execution of Jesus. So the scribes are no friends of Jesus. We've already seen how Jesus has uh, drawn the ire of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. But the scribes got this right. Jesus affirms the scribes are correct. And of course, that's because the scribes were simply relying on Malachi uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Jimmy read that prophecy for us this morning. There in Malachi 4, God says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's when God arrives, when God shows up to be with His people in power, in grace, in blessing, and yes, in judgment. Malachi 4 goes on to say what this Elijah figure will do before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So see, roughly 500 years before Jesus and the transfiguration occurred, Malachi had said, Elijah is waiting in the wings. Elijah will be unleashed. Elijah will carry out a new ministry. And that's going to happen right before history's climactic moment, right before the day of the Lord, when the Lord shows up in all His power and all His glory. Right before the Messiah comes and the kingdom is inaugurated and everything is put right. The disciples seem to have been wondering if the appearance of Elijah on the mountain was indeed the promised manifestation of Elijah. If Elijah is showing up on that mountain, is that what Malachi was talking about? Because if so, that means that the day of the Lord must be right around the corner. What does Jesus do with this question? He affirms their expectation, but He gives it a twist. Yes, He says, the scribes have read Malachi right. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But then He goes on to say, Elijah has come. And they did to Him whatever they wished as it is written of Him. Now, that phrase, they did to him whatever they wished, is clearly an allusion to the story of John the Baptist beheading, uh, which Mark has told us back in chapter 6. In other words, what Jesus says here is that the prophecy of Elijah's coming has actually been fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. John was a new Elijah. In fact... We know from the Gospel accounts there were so many similarities between John the Baptist and the historical record of Elijah that people would ask John, are you Elijah? And John denied it because, of, of course, literally he was not Elijah. But we do know that John came ministering in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's how Luke 1.17 puts it. John came dressed like Elijah in camel skins. He shared Elijah's diet, a menu of honey and locusts. Mark tells us all of that. And so who is John? John is the eschatological Elijah. A new Elijah. A symbolic Elijah. A figurative Elijah. Yes, but the one in whom Malachi's prophecy about Elijah is fulfilled. 
See, John came to restore Israel. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. He came to restore Israel by baptizing the people in the Jordan. And the Gospel accounts tell us that all of Israel came out to be cleansed with this washing, this baptism by John in the Jordan. John restored the nation by calling the people to repentance. And in so doing, prepared the way for Messiah's coming. But what happened? Just as the original Elijah was opposed by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and indeed persecuted by them, so John was opposed by King Herod and Herodias and they did with him as they wished. And so John's head ended up on a dinner plate. Now this has the disciples confused. Jesus has said to keep His word of transfiguration quiet, but to keep what's happened quiet until He has risen from the dead. But His rising from the dead presupposes His death. The only way He can rise from the dead is if He dies. But the disciples know that Elijah's coming means that the promised kingdom is about to be inaugurated So how can you have Messiah rising from the dead after Elijah has come? That would mean Messiah dies after Elijah comes. If Elijah comes to restore Israel, how can Messiah end up dead? For Jesus to literally rise, He'd have to literally die. And that's just unthinkable. God can't let the Messiah die. This one they've just seen in dazzling and radiant glory. There's no way He can die. Surely God is not going to let His Christ, His Messiah, suffer such an indignity. So perhaps they thought, Jesus must be speaking of this resurrection stuff metaphorically. After all, there are a number of Old Testament passages in which the resurrection is used as a kind of metaphor, such as Ezekiel chapter 37, where Ezekiel has this vision of a valley of dry bones, and it's a picture of Israel in exile. And God's Spirit comes and knits together those dry bones and then gives them flesh and forms them into a living army. And it's a a picture, a vision of Israel returning from exile and being restored as God's people. And so the way that return from exile is depicted in the prophetic vision is in terms of a kind of national resurrection. That's what the prophet saw. It was a kind of metaphorical use of resurrection. The disciples might be thinking, well, uh, maybe... Maybe Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Certainly Jews expected a kind of metaphorical resurrection of the nation when the nation returned from exile. Of course, they also expected all dead Israelites to be raised physically in a bodily resurrection when Messiah came. What they could not figure out, indeed what they seem to be debating amongst themselves, is how could Jesus talk about His resurrection as if it were something that would happen to him alone, not everyone at once, as Isaiah seemed to envision. And how could he describe his resurrection as something that would happen not at the end of history, but indeed somewhere in the middle of history, so that after his resurrection, history would somehow still go on. This is how one commentator describes it. I think it it gets at the mind of the disciples at this point really well. As Jews, the disciples knew what the final rising of the dead was to be. It was to be the end, the last day when God would raise up all who had ever lived 
and make them stand before His terrible judgment seat to receive their eternal reward and sentence. But Jesus seemed to mean something else, something imminent and historical, something in this life after which they could tell everyone what they had seen. He couldn't have meant, they reasoned, the final resurrection of all. For after that event, the present age would be over and there would be no point in telling anyone anything. So it's all very cryptic. It seems like Jesus has jumbled all of these things together. He's taken their smooth timeline of events, their timetable they're expecting. Elijah coming, and then God coming through His Messiah to establish His kingdom, and then everything becomes glorious all at once. That's their timeline. That's how they expect. And Jesus says, yes, Elijah has come, but then Messiah still got to die and rise from the dead, and then you can start telling people what you saw on the mountain. It just doesn't make any sense to them. Not only is Jesus messing with the timeline as they understand it, but Jesus is also putting together the Scriptures in ways that they would not have anticipated. He's putting together very Scriptures in ways that they would not have done. Again, they thought Elijah's coming signaled the Lord's coming and all the glory that would follow. But Jesus seems to see Elijah's execution, that is, the execution of John, as heralding His own execution. As a kind of preview of the way He would be treated as well. Again, not what they were expecting. Jesus sees John's fate as a preview of His own. So Jesus says they did whatever they wished to Elijah. But then Jesus goes on to say, the Son of Man will be humiliated too. He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. The real problem here is that when Jesus talks about this suffering and this humiliation and this being treated with contempt, He is doing so while at the same time identifying Himself as the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Every Jew would have been familiar with the Son of Man passage in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is a triumphant figure. He's a victorious figure who ascends into the heavenlies on the glory cloud. And he inherits a worldwide empire and he's seated on a heavenly throne to rule over the beastly empires and subdue them and tame them for his own purposes. But it seems here that Jesus has taken this Son of Man passage in Daniel 7 and he has blended it with the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant being treated with contempt and suffering humiliation. Jesus has taken that Son of Man passage and the suffering servant passage and merged them together. But how can that be? The Son of Man is a glorious and victorious figure. The suffering, the, the, the suffering servant figure is one who's so full of shame, we don't even want to look at him. Much less put our hope in him. It's like Jesus has crossed the streams, the Son of Man stream and the Suffering Servant stream. They must have thought Jesus was confused. How can the Son of Man who has promised triumph undergo the contempt of the Suffering Servant? That's really the question. That's really the tension. In their minds, if you die a humiliating, shameful, contemptible death, then you can't be the King. You can't be the King God promised. But see, what we've seen Jesus doing again and again in Mark's Gospel is He's really leaving behind Him a trail 
of clues. Kind of like leaving a trail of breadcrumbs through, breadcrumbs through the forest so you can find your way back. Jesus is leaving a trail of clues everywhere he goes. And if you follow that trail, where does it ultimately lead? It leads to the cross. It leads to Calvary, to Golgotha, where Jesus will die. But hidden in that death is a glory the disciples don't yet understand. See, the disciples won't be able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together in this way for quite some time. Really, I think the point Jesus is getting at is this. The, G, the, the point really I think Mark is getting at in the way he tells this story, what he's chosen to include is this. Jesus has just been transfigured. His glory has been revealed. But even on His way down from the mountain of glory, the cross is casting its shadow across His path to show the disciples this same glorious figure who moments before shined with a dazzling and blinding light on the mountain will soon be nailed to a tree as darkness covers the land and He is left naked and abandoned. I think really to fully understand the transfiguration and its aftermath, we really have to read Mark's Gospel backwards. Yeah, we read it forwards and we can see the progression there. But we also need to read it backwards. We need to read the beginning and middle section of the Gospel in light of how it all ends. See, the transfiguration, when you read a passage like this, yes, certainly it is preparation for the ending. But in light of the ending, we can also see a lot of interesting connections emerge if we look at this passage again. I said earlier at the beginning that Mark is truly a literary genius. Here's another example of this. Mark has structured his gospel around three key revelatory events. Three key apocalyptic events that reveal the identity of Jesus. You have the baptism of Jesus at the beginning, the transfiguration of Jesus in the middle, and the cross of Jesus at the end. And what links each one of these events in Mark's Gospel is in each one, Jesus is identified as the Son of God. They're the only three places in Mark's Gospel where Jesus is identified as Son of God. Compare the transfiguration to the baptism. In each one, the voice speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son. In the baptism, John is present to perform the baptism. In the transfiguration, he's present as a topic of conversation. In the baptism, Mark tells us heaven is torn open. In the transfiguration, heaven comes near in the glory cloud. In the baptism, Jesus is anointed as King. In the transfiguration, He appears in kingly robes and kingly glory. But that's not all. See, from this perch on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, yes, we can look down on the baptism and the Galilean ministry of Jesus, all that's already happened, and we can see its connections. But we can also look to the future, to what is to come. To Jesus as He moves towards Jerusalem and goes to the cross. All that is about to happen. So compare the Transfiguration to the crucifixion. In the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in strength and power. On the cross, He is revealed in lowliness and humility. In the transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by two prophets. 
On the cross, He's flanked by two feet. In the transfiguration, His garments glisten and dazzle. On the cross, His garments are taken from Him and He's left naked and ashamed. In the transfiguration, three male disciples stand nearby and watch. On the cross, three female disciples stand from a distance and watch. In the transfiguration, glory, the glory cloud overshadows them. At the cross, darkness shadows the land. In the transfiguration, Elijah is present and discussed. On the cross, the mockers say, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. In the transfiguration, the divine voice speaks from heaven, this is the Son of God. On the cross, you have the earthly analog of that. A Roman soldier declares, surely this man was the Son of God. In the transfiguration, the Father makes His presence known to His Son through His voice. At the cross, the Son makes His Father's absence known through His voice as He cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? In the transfiguration, glory is revealed on the cross. Well, what exactly is revealed on the cross? Yes, it is suffering. It is humiliation. But Mark wants us to see hidden in that suffering and humiliation, the glory of Jesus is revealed. The reason the transfiguration and crucifixion correspond to one another is because in Jesus, suffering and glory are fused together. In Jesus, suffering and glory are merged and combined. See, what does the cross do? The cross combines death and life. Jesus dies so we might live. It combines condemnation and justification. He is condemned so we might be justified. And on the cross, He suffers, but it's a glorious suffering. A suffering that reveals glory. A suffering and glory we come to share in. See, really, the transfiguration and the cross need each other. They interpret one another. They go together. And when you understand them this way, then the cross can really transform the way you look at suffering in your life. God has a portion for each one of us to go through a certain number of trials, struggles, difficulties. A certain amount of suffering has been apportioned to each one of us. How are we to look at that suffering? How are we to endure that suffering? We're to see that our suffering is in union with Christ Himself. The Christ who suffers for us, with us, and in us. The Christ whose suffering is glorious. The Christ who intertwines our suffering with glory as well. So that our suffering like His becomes fruitful, even full of promise because our suffering is paving the way for us to mature. See, that's what the disciples couldn't figure out. They, they couldn't figure out how suffering would fit into the divine program. How can the Son of Man be victorious if He's going to suffer so many things and be treated with contempt? 
And we can ask the same thing about the church and about the Christian life today. How can this be the victorious and abundant life God has promised me if there's so much suffering and so much about it that the world holds in contempt? The cross plus the transfiguration is your answer. The cross reveals to us glory. The cross brings together pain and glory and aligns them perfectly. See, all our questions about suffering, all our questions about the problem of pain and the problem of evil, where is the answer found? God's answer is found in the cross. All our questions, why do we suffer? Why is there evil in the world? The Justin Holcomb lecture. Why is there sex trafficking? Why do we live in a world where that kind of thing happens? The persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Why do we live in a world where that kind of thing happens? The cross reveals to us the logic of God. The wisdom of God. The cross shows us the logic of the Christian life. If the King has suffered, and that suffering is glorious, Surely His followers will suffer as well. But in their suffering, glory will be revealed. That's really Paul's point at the end of 2 Corinthians. We just read a piece of 2 Corinthians 3. The end of 2 Corinthians 3. But in the wider context, Paul's talking about suffering. But he says in the midst of this suffering, there's no reason to be disheartened or discouraged because what's being revealed in you through your suffering is glory. As you stay faithful, as you stay true to God in the midst of your suffering, you move from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. So here's the logic of the Gospel, the logic of the cross, the logic of the Christian life. If the King, the all-glorious King, the One who is revealed in such splendor and radiance, on the Mount of Transfiguration, if that King, that all-glorious One, was willing to stoop and serve us, humbling Himself, loving even His enemies sacrificially, how can we not be willing to do the same? To love one another sacrificially, to serve one another in humility. See, sometimes we think of the cross as a kind of prelude to glory. There's the cross, and that's all humiliation, and then thankfully the resurrection follows, and that's glory. And there's a sense in which Scripture gives us that pattern. That's the pattern you find in a lot of the catechisms and that kind of thing. It's there. But I think what Mark is showing us here, by the way he links the transfiguration to the cross, he wants us to see the cross is not just a prelude to glory. The cross is glory. And the crosses God calls you to carry, your struggles, your trials, your pains, your sufferings, as you carry those crosses, glory is revealed. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 12. Interesting parallel. Jesus says in John 12, when He is lifted up, He will draw all people to Himself. Ah, there it is. When He's exalted, the nations will come in. But then John adds to that, he said this to signify by what manner of death he would die. What is the lifting up? What's his exaltation that's going to draw all nations in? It's when he's lifted up and nailed to a cross. That's the lifting up. That's the exaltation that brings the nations in. And as for the Savior, so it is for the saved. 
His cross reveals glory. Glory is seen in how He suffered. We reveal glory as we seek to suffer faithfully as well. And indeed, as the world sees us suffer faithfully, without cursing God, without renouncing God, but staying true to Him, staying faithful to Him, the nations are drawn in. We were made to reveal glory. We were made to shine with the same kind of dazzling brilliance revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. We were made to live in that glory cloud. What's that mean? It means take up your cross and follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that Jesus did not take the easy path or the expected path. We thank You He took the path of the cross. For through the cross, the greatest glory of all has been revealed. The cross is the greatest glory of all. Father, I pray that as each of us endures whatever suffering You've ordained for us to endure, whatever crosses we're called to carry, sins we're called to struggle with, difficult relationships, bodily illnesses and weaknesses. Father, whatever array of trials that You call us to go through, I pray that we would be faithful to You and in so being faithful that the dazzling, radiant glory of Jesus would shine through us. Father, we pray that with unveiled faces we might reflect to You and to one another and to the world the glory of Jesus. This is our prayer in His name. Yeah.